Chapter 11, Part 1 of Wood and Garden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carol Kucher. Wood and Garden Notes and Thoughts, Practical and Critical of a Working Amateur by Gertrude Jekyll. Chapter 11 Part 1. Michaelmas Daisies, Arranging and Staking, Spindle Tree, Autumn Color of Azaleas, Quinces, Meddlers, Advantage of Early Planting of Shrubs, Careful Planting, Pot-Bound Roots, Cypress Hedge, Planting in Difficult Places, Hardy Flower Border, Lifting Dahlias, Dividing hardy plants. The early days of October bring with them the best bloom of the Michaelmas daisies, the many beautiful garden kinds of the perennial asters. They have, as they well deserve to have, a garden to themselves. Passing along the wide path in front of the big flower border, and through the pergola that forms its continuation, with eye and brain full of rich, warm coloring of flower and leaf, it is a delightful surprise to pass through the pergola's last right-hand opening and to come suddenly upon the Michaelmas daisy garden in full beauty. Its clean, fresh, pure coloring of pale and dark lilac, strong purple, and pure white among masses of pale green foliage forms a contrast almost startling after the warm coloring of nearly everything else and the sight of a region where the flowers are fresh and newly opened, and in glad, spring-like profusion, when all else is on the verge of death and decay, gives an impression of satisfying refreshment that is hardly to be equaled throughout the year. Their special garden is a wide border on each side of a path, its length bounded on one side by a tall hedge of filberts, and on the other side by clumps of yew, holly, and other shrubs. It is so well sheltered that the strongest wind has its destructive power broken, and only reaches it as a refreshing, tree-filtered breeze. The Michaelmas daisies are replanted every year as soon as their bloom is over, the ground having been newly dug and manured. The old roots, which will have increased about fourfold, are pulled or chopped to pieces, nice bits with about five crowns being chosen for replanting. These are put in groups of three to five together. Tall growing kinds like Novi Belgi Robert Parker are kept rather towards the back, while those of delicate and graceful habit, such as Cordifolius elegans and its good variety Diana, are allowed to come forward. The fine dwarf Asteramellus is used in rather large quantity, coming quite to the front in some places, and running in and out between the clumps of other kinds. Good-sized groups of pyrethrum oleaginosum are given a place among the asters, for though of quite another family, they are daisies, and bloom at Michaelmas, and are admirable companions to the main occupants of the borders. The only other plants admitted are white dahlias, the two differently striped varieties of Eulalia japonica, the fresh green foliage of Indian corn, and the brilliant light green leafage of Funkia grandiflora. Great attention is paid to staking the asters. Nothing is more deplorable than to see a neglected, overgrown plant at the last moment, when already half-blown down, tied up in a tight bunch to one stake. When we are cutting underwood in the copse in the winter, 
special branching spray is looked out for our Michaelmas daisies and cut about four feet or five feet long, with one main stem and from two to five branches. Towards the end of June and beginning of July, these are thrust firmly into the ground among the plants, and the young growths are tied out so as to show to the best advantage. Good kinds of Michaelmas daisies are now so numerous that in selecting those for the special garden, it is well to avoid both the ones that bloom earliest and also the very latest, so that for about three weeks the borders may show a well-filled mass of bloom. The bracken in the copse stands dry and dead, but when leaves are fluttering down and the chilly days of mid-October are upon us, its warm, rusty coloring is certainly cheering. The green of the freshly grown mossy carpet below looks vividly bright by contrast. Some bushes of spindle tree, Euonymus europaeus, are loaded with their rosy seed pods. Some are already burst and show the orange-scarlet seeds, an audacity of coloring that looks all the brighter for the even, lusterless green of the leaves and of the green-barked twigs and stems. The hardy azaleas are now blazing masses of crimson, almost scarlet leaf. The old A. pontica, with its large foliage, is as bright as any. With them are grouped some of the North American vicciniums and andromedas, with leaves almost as bright. The ground between the groups of shrubs is knee-deep in heath. The rusty-colored withered bloom of the wild heath on its purplish-gray masses and the surrounding banks of dead fern make a groundwork and background of excellent color harmony. How seldom does one see quinces planted for ornament, and yet there is hardly any small tree that better deserves such treatment. Some quinces planted about eight years ago are now perfect pictures, their lysome branches borne down with the load of great deep yellow fruit and their leaves turning to a color almost as rich and glowing. The old English rather round-fruited kind with the smooth skin is the best both for flavor and beauty. A mature tree without leaves in winter has a remarkably graceful, arching, almost weeping growth. The other kind is of a rather more rigid form, and though its woolly-coated pear-shaped fruits are larger and strikingly handsome, the whole tree has a coarser look, and just lacks the attractive grace of the other. They will do fairly well almost anywhere, though they prefer a rich, loamy soil and a cool, damp, or even swampy place. The medlar is another of the small fruiting trees that is more neglected than it should be, as it well deserves a place among the ornamental shrubs. Here it is a precious thing in the region where garden melts into copse. The fruit-laden twigs are just now very attractive, and its handsome leaves can never be passed without admiration. Close to the meddlers is a happy intergrowth of the wild gelder rose, still bearing its brilliant clusters, a strong-growing and far-clambering garden form of Rosa arvensis, full of red hips, sweet briar, and holly, a happy tangle of red-fruited bushes, all looking as if they were trying to prove, in friendly emulation, which can make the bravest show of red-buried, wild-flung wreath, or bending spray, or stately spire, while at their foot the bright color is repeated by the bending, buried heads of the wild iris, opening like fantastic dragon's mouths, and pouring out the red, bead-like seeds upon the ground. And as if to make the picture still more complete, the leaves of the wild strawberry that cover the ground with a close carpet have also turned to a crimson, 
and here and there to an almost scarlet color. During the year I make careful notes of any trees or shrubs that will be wanted, either to come from the nursery or to be transplanted within my own ground, so as to plant them as early as possible. Of the two extremes it is better to plant too early than too late. I would rather plant deciduous trees before the leaves are off than wait till after Christmas, but of all planting times the best is from the middle of October till the end of November, and the same time is the best for all hardy plants of large or moderate size. I have no patience with slovenly planting. I like to have the ground prepared some months in advance, and when the proper time comes, to do the actual planting as well as possible. The hole in the already prepared ground is taken out, so that the tree shall stand exactly right for depth, though in this dry soil it is well to make the hole an inch or two deeper, in order to leave the tree standing in the center of a shallow depression, to allow of a good watering now and then during the following summer. The hole must be made wide enough to give easy space for the most outward reaching of the roots. They must be spread out on all sides, carefully combing them out with the fingers, so that they all lay out to the best advantage. Any roots that have been bruised, or have broken or jagged ends, are cut off with a sharp knife on the homeward side of the injury. Most gardeners, when they plant, after the first spadeful or two has been thrown over the root, shake the bush with an up-and-down joggling movement. This is useful in the case of plants with a good lot of bushy root, such as berberus, helping to get the grains of earth well in among the root. But in tree planting, where the roots are laid out flat, it is of course useless. In our light soil, the closer and firmer the earth is made round the newly planted tree the better, and strong staking is most important, in order to save the newly placed root from disturbance by dragging. Some trees and shrubs one can only get from nurseries in pots. This is usually the case with Ilex, Escalonia, and Cydonia. Such plants are sure to have the roots badly matted and twisted. The main root curls painfully round and round inside the imprisoning pot, but if it is a clever root it works its way out through the hole in the bottom, and even makes quite nice roots in the bed of ashes it has stood on. In this case, as these are probably its best roots, we do not attempt to pull it back through the hole, but break the pot to release it without hurt. If it is possible to straighten the pot-curled root, it is best to do so. In any case, the small fibrous ones can be laid out. Often the pot full of roots is so hard and tight that it cannot be disentangled by the hand. Then the only way is to soften it by gentle bumping on the bench, and then to disengage the roots by little careful digs all round with a blunt-pointed stick. If this is not done, and the plant is put in in its pot-bound state, it never gets on. It would be just as well to throw it away at once. Nine years ago a hedge of Lawson's cypress was planted on one side of the kitchen garden. Three years later, when the trees had made some growth, I noticed, in the case of three or four, that they were quite bare of branches on one side, all the way up for a width of about one-sixth of the circumference, leaving a smooth, straight, upright strip. Suspecting the cause, I had them up, and found in every case that the root just below the bare strip had been doubled under the stem, and had therefore been unable to do its share of the work. Nothing could have pointed out more clearly the defect in the planting. 
There are cases where ground cannot be prepared as one would wish, and where one has to get over the difficulty the best way one can. Such a case occurred when I had to plant some yews and savins right under a large birch tree. The birch is one of several large ones that nearly surround the lawn. This one stands just within the end of a large shrub clump, near the place of meeting of some paths with the grass and with some planting. Here some further planting was wanted of dark-leaved evergreens. There is no tree more ground-robbing than a birch, and under the tree in question the ground was dust-dry, extremely hard, and nothing but the poorest sand. Looking at the foot of a large tree, one can always see which way the main roots go, and the only way to get down any depth is to go between these and not many feet away from the trunk. Farther away the roots spread out and would receive more injury. So the ground was got up the best way we could, and the ewes and savins planted. Now, after some six years, they are healthy and dark-colored, and have made good growth. But in such a place one cannot expect the original preparation of the ground, such as it was, to go for much. The year after planting they had some strong, lasting manure just pricked in over the roots, stuff from the shoeing forge, full of hoof-pairings. Hoof-pairings are rich in ammonia and decay slowly. Every other year they have either a repetition of this or some cooling cow manure. The big birch no doubt gets some of it, though its hungriest roots are farther afield, but the rich color of the shrubs shows that they are well nourished. End of chapter 11, part 1 Recording by Carol Kuchar, Toledo, Ohio CarolKucherSpeaking.com